Please support the Climate Change and Happiness podcast. See the donate page at climatechangeandhappiness.com. The climate is changing at an accelerating pace. Thousands of residents and tourists have been evacuated from the region. No one country can solve this problem. There's really one key message that emerges from this report. We are out of time. Welcome to Climate Change and Happiness, an international podcast that explores the personal side of climate change, your feelings, what the crisis means to you, and how to cope and thrive. And now, your hosts, Thomas Doherty and Panu Pikala. Well, hello, I'm Thomas Doherty. And I am Panu Pikala. And welcome to Climate Change and Happiness, our podcast. This is a show for people around the globe who are feeling and thinking deeply about the personal side of climate change, including their emotional responses and how they cope with all this information and all these events. Um, and today we are very honored to have a guest with us. Hey, everyone. I'm Leslie Davenport, and I'm working as a climate psychology educator and consultant. And we're really glad to have Leslie. Both Pauline and I are aware of Leslie and have met her in the past. Um, Leslie, among other things, had a book that came out nearly a decade ago on emotional, emotional resilience in the era of climate change. And at that time, that, that book might have seen, maybe seen, maybe it was a little bit ahead of, it, ahead of its time. Um, but now in where we are today, People are picking up these books and another work uh, that Leslie's doing and really finding it quite meaningful. So we're right, uh, really glad to have Leslie with us today. Um, Pana, do you want to get us started on our dialogue? Mm -hmm. Warmly welcome, Leslie, also on, on my behalf. And we have met in various online meetings and luckily there is this network of earth-minded people uh, gathering from various parts of the globe. And, but uh, we'd like to start by discussing a bit your own journey towards this. So would you like to share, share something that how, how did you end up becoming a climate aware psychological professional in such an early, early state? Yes, thank you. You know, um, it's one of those stories that it's hard to know where to start because I find that glancing back, there are these threads that connect that at the time, I had no idea where it would lead. Mm -hmm. um, so I will mention briefly a couple of earlier career paths that I feel ended up becoming foundational to what I do now. One is that um, in addition to other things, I have a master's degree in dance, was a mm -hmm. professional dancer for quite some time. So a body-based understanding and knowing and how that connects to our emotions and our thinking uh, and relating to the space around us as we move is actually really integral uh, to the way I think. And I went from being a dancer uh, into training in psychology, but I was wanted to really keep that body-mind connection going. And I worked for 25 years in a hospital where I was, how much is uh, what we think and what we feel connected to the health in our body and vice versa? If things are happening in the body, what happens to us emotionally? And, and how can that be used for healing? 
And it was part of a very innovative program. This is a big hospital system in San Francisco, California, uh, that really began to pull in integrative approaches. So there was an interdisciplinary meeting every week with the best of medical science, Western science, uh, MDs, along with an Ayurvedic physician, body workers, uh, acupuncturists, nutritionists, psychotherapists who, and I was also using guided imagery and meditation. And this is important because I, I ended up feeling like this uh, way of coming together with interdisciplinary views to look at healing became kind of the boot camp for uh, looking at climate psychology as I began to discover it, that we needed to have a behavioralist at the table along with the engineers and the scientists and the marketing folks. Uh, and that it really was in these collective voices and various ways of, of viewing things, looking at it through different lenses and sharing that sort of holistic view and holistic wisdom uh, became key to me. So the way it led to that book that you mentioned, which uh, you know, came out in print in 2017, is that I had had maybe 15 years ago this, I guess you'd call it sort of an awakening where what I was learning about the climate became so real that it kind of went from my head and dropped down into my heart and my body. And I really felt like I need to and I want to turn the ship <laughs> inside myself so that my personal and professional efforts were now devoted to this. And I was like, how do I do this? It was, as you mentioned, kind of ahead of uh, this growing community that we have now of people looking at this. So I was like, well, how can I leverage my role in psychotherapy? And I'm like, okay, well, we're trained in how to work with denial, how to navigate difficult, complex emotions, how to work with grief how to facilitate what could be contentious conversations. And I realized that there's this wealth of things that are already built into mental health training that hadn't really been applied to climate change. And that really is what prompted the writing of that book. How can I take these, you know, what now seem like obvious connections and um, articulate how it applies to what these growing needs are with our environmental crisis. And it was written particularly for the mental health field. Uh, like, let's use what we've got, you know, let's, let's get on board. Um, so part of my work still involves um, helping to train mental health professionals because as we know, at this point, it's not a required part of licensing, uh, at least in the U.S. I haven't heard of any place yet where it has become an, an integral part of it. Mm -hmm. Thanks so much, Leslie, for sharing. That's fasc fascinating and 
links with many things we have been discussing in this podcast, including this conceptualizations of processes around ecological emotions and awakening could be seen as one, one face, face there. And very fascinated to hear about this dancing history. I didn't know, know that about you. And that sort of explains some things <laughs> when, when, when getting this book, Emotional Resilience in the Era of Climate Change, I was very happy that there's this body-wise exercises and texts so there was much more sort of somatic body mind content than in many many other other books and what you say about dancing and the body mind connection for you sort of explains some of that (laughs) yes yes and i'll say just a little more about that if people haven't looked at the book so in the back especially i have a series of practices or exercises that takes a theme and it starts with a body-wise approach, with ways to get into your body to explore it. Same theme goes into um, heart and mind exploration, how it affects us or touches us emotionally and the thoughts it triggers. And then what I call worldwise, how we can take that and move it into becoming part of creating a a healthier, safer world. Yeah, this is really helpful. We're going to put links to different things that Leslie, Leslie's been doing in in our show notes, but uh, it's just really great. You know, there's a concept in systems thinking called equifinality, mm-hmm. right? Where pe- things will start from different places, but eventually end up in the same place, yeah. uh, systems. And that's the feeling I have when I hear people like Leslie, because it's I, I'm reminded so much of my own path you know, I did my dissertation in the hospital working in cardiac rehab, and, <laughs> okay. you know, and, you know, yeah. doing the whole mind-body thing and was a trainee at the mindfulness meditation program at UMass, yes. UMass uh, Medical Center in Worcester, John Kabat-Zinn program. And so, um, so it's just interesting to, to, to see because I've, I've, I see these, these parallels with a lot of the leaders in in this area people have either done healthcare work as you say or done the arts yeah. or done outdoor outdoor leadership but they've established themselves in some of these areas and mm-hmm. and so it does remind us that good people have been thinking about all of this stuff for a long time yes you know these 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 good ideas have been brewing in our system the innovators and 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 so we never know for the listeners you never know what will happen from the th- the good if you do good things, you never know what eventually will happen from them, you know. Uh, so who knew what would happen in that hospital in San Francisco, but it spawned at least this this work, as well as probably other things too. So that's just really nice to hear. How, how about, Leslie, your earlier childhood and youth, if I may ask, we often discuss things related to environmental identity <laughs> and nature connection in the, in the, in the podcast. So uh, do, do you, what, what's your thoughts about those dimensions in your personal history? Do you see some tra- trajectories there? Or? I have sort of a strange, I'm not sure that it's uh, going to be the classic <laughs> way that the childhood uh, experiences lead to this. Um, I grew up in the suburbs of LA. It was actually pretty separate from being in natural environments. Uh, We would, uh, as a family, often travel to the beach for weekends because it was sort of a, you know, inexpensive way to have family outings. So there was, there was that. 
but honestly, most of it was very um, uh, neighborhoody. We weren't campers. We didn't go necessarily to any of the national parks or things like that. So I think my connection came uh, more from an internal home, honestly, than an external one. And I'll tell you just a little story that I think contributed to this that a lot of people don't know. Um, so I have, um, well now I do fine with glasses, but as a child I had very extremely poor eyesight you know, can't read the big E on the chart, but this wasn't discovered in my family until I was about seven to eight. And it was a, a story like uh, we were driving somewhere in the car and my mom said, oh, look at that horse. And I'm like, what horse? And said, right there, that horse. And they discovered that somehow all this time, they're like, what do you do in school? How do you get home? <laughs> Because I wasn't, you know, there was this an assumption, right? And as a child, I just assumed everyone was functioning the way I was. Mm. But I mention it because I think that really heightened my internal sensitivities in a way that has served me very well, really tuning in um, that I feel like has been a very become a more and more trustworthy guide for for me. Uh, a kind of inner listening, a kind of inner seeing, not disembodied. I mean, I talk about dance and things like that, but it, it, it it's not the kind of story of, you know, living by a creek or relating to, you know, animals or things like that. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so less visual. Uh, <laughs> I mean, humans are a very visual species, right? And we know even when people can see a chemical plant, they're more likely to have you know, symptoms of stress and, and illness just because mm -hmm. of this, what they can see in their vision. That sounds like you're less, slightly less visual oriented and more uh, internally, mm -hmm. uh, internally or, or, you know, bodily oriented. Yeah. So that makes sense. Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. And this is a very important testimony also to the diversity of people's life parts mm -hmm. into environmental values mm -hmm. and there's been great and important critical work in environmental studies also mm -hmm. about certain overly monolithic assumptions mm -hmm. or for example about the, the part of the environmentalist and mm -hmm. uh, Nicole Seymour's book Bad Environmentalism is one very interesting example of of you know uh, taking a look at the traditional narratives in a very very different different way for for example and, well, but what you say reminds me also of something you have written about a lot and used a lot, which is uh, um, Im imagery. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry if my English pronunciation is a, is a bad, bit bad here, but using intentionally uh, inner Im images. And would you like to say something about that, that part of your work and perhaps especially how you relate it to environmental and climate matters? Yes, I would love to say something about that because you're right, that's kind of the bridge for me with this internal-external connection. Um, one thing that I think really has contributed and is contributing to the climate crisis that gets talked about in various ways is the way we conceptualize ourselves and relate as being separate from nature, right? We may love it, we may fight to protect it, we might be afraid of it. We were more urban <laughs> when we grew up. 
Um, but to have that visceral sense that we are part of that, you know, even our breath and meditative breath work that we could understand it as sky that we're breathing, for example, not mm -hmm. just air, not just breath, that if we look at a tree, uh, there's this sense of often it's a, a commodity or it's a beautiful thing or provides some shade, all of that is true. But without, you know, if we deepen that understanding and that perception of our connection, we understand it is a part of that same cycle of our breath, right? How the air is circulating and it's stabilizing the soil and it's regulating the temperature. And I think if that awareness was really supported and cultivated and, and especially through our education system and as children, it would influence, that perception would influence our behaviors of how we treat it, how we relate to it. And this is connected to guided imagery because guided imagery is a process that tends to quiet our uh, analytical part of the mind and uh, brings more into focus and into the foreground are what used to be called sort of the right brain, an impressionistic, a holistic way of relating. Um, and so I feel like a guided imagery, as well as other types of practices that are found in the arts and contemplative traditions, reactivate um, essential parts of our humanity that the predominant Western culture has sort of pushed into dormancy because of having such a high premium on analytical thinking and achievement, right? And going for the next thing and productivity. And it's, it's really swung us out of balance. And I feel like these kinds of practices help us reclaim our humanity. It affects again our eyes, how we perceive whether it's our physical eyes or a different type of sensitivity to how we relate to other people, how we relate to the world. Um, so it feels, it, I know it's often viewed as something kind of peripheral or of interest to certain people, but I actually believe it's quite integral and in that the capacity to do this is within everyone. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm just thinking about there's yeah there's a, a lot of as always there's a lot of directions we can go as <laughs> the listeners are following along with us but you know we can get into the theory about the right brain and the left brain and all that sort of stuff and there's a lot there we can maybe put in the notes but staying with the the, the listeners experience so you know Leslie's book the resiliency book is good for adults and it, it it guides people through all of this these ideas with visualizations and kind of reflective writing and imagery i love that term breathing the sky you know that's such a such a beautiful poetic term that really does capture things uh um reminds me of writers like david abram and other kinds of people that have done written written beautiful things but maybe we can link this to the uh all the feelings under the sun uh book that you worked on leslie and also with children because i think that uh, young people get this they they haven't really been it hasn't been trained out of them yet. Yes. Uh, some of this thinking <laughs> that we, we adults do, particularly in scientists and things like that. Yes. Uh, but um, 
I imagine that this this kind of um, these kind of activities really work well with young people and children. Yes, they do. Um, very easy, much easier to engage in a drawing practice as a way to explore emotions, for example. Um, and I'll just say a little bit how that book came into being too, because it's interesting. Um, so that book is published by the APA, American Psychological Association's Children's Book Division, Imagination Press. And they reached out to me because they knew about the first book we were talking about and said, can you kind of translate this to kids? Could you do this for kids? While my training and my experience has certainly included children, it hadn't really been a core focus of mine prior to this book. And so I decided to do some of my own field research and I went to some of the schools in my area and got kids in the neighborhood I can interview. And I just asked them very broadly, you know, what have you heard about climate change? And, you know, what, you know, what feelings come up for you? What are your questions? Just very, very broad inquiry. One of the things I found really fascinating is whether I was in a classroom and the teacher was listening in, or often there were parents off to the side in some of these situations, um, the kids were very articulate, talking about many of them, like I'm talking about ages 8, 9, 10, of what climate change is, how it works, why we're in this situation, what's happening with the impacts. And many of the parents were stunned. They were like, I had no idea that, that this was in your awareness. You knew this much about it. We don't talk about this. And they're like, where are you, where are you getting this? <laughs> are they teaching this in school? And they're like, no, I just, you know, heard something on the news and I Googled it. Mm-hmm. You know, they're interested, but it, it's just the beginning of, creating a sort of developmentally appropriate education, you know, hopefully, and this is part of what I'm trying to do, paired with what schools call social emotional learning, how, you know, let's not just replicate what we as adults have to deal with where there's bad news and more bad news and now go about your day, but how can, how can we be compassionate truth tellers and be present with and attend to what that calls up in children. And so that's really what that book does, is it pairs some climate science with then working with the feelings, the thoughts, the ways to get involved, not to shift the responsibility onto them. But kids want to find ways to, to be part of it. Mm. Yeah, that's great. Um, uh, st- I strongly appreciate that you did actual research when starting to write write the bo- book, and that shows uh, shows how much effort you were willing to put put into this, and and heart also, and also reminds me of my dear colleague Caroline Hickman mm-hmm. from 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 Great Britain, who's been interviewing kids about climate change in various parts of the world, and she says exactly the same that very often parents don't have an idea how much the kids know about climate change or 
already. And of course, that's a big challenge for education institutions, in, for environmental education. Uh, and the idea that we should just wait uh, doesn't work anymore because kids hear about it. So that puts uh, the thing that you mentioned, being a compassionate truth teller and also being able to adjust the message to suit the age group so that becomes ever ever more important and yeah. and also basically i think just the uh, just the thing that kids have adults nearby who manifest that they are willing to encounter these issues mm. and also showing that you know it's possible to cope in some way or, or another so i'm very very grateful that you did did that bo book and i <laughs> hope it's spreading faster <laughs> yeah thank you yeah thank you yeah well we know you know we know that people don't as adults we know that people don't talk about climate change it's 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 a it's, it's still considered a sensitive taboo subject in a lot of areas yes. uh, so people don't bring it up or they don't feel confident or competent about their own knowledge and that's why i'm always coming back to this whole idea of environmental identity because people aren't really clear about their environmental identity thus they're not clear how they should communicate about their connections with nature and their values and their and, that, and then it keeps everyone stifled in terms of their climate conversation. And so that manifests, you know, in families. Yeah. I have a blind spot to that because my daughter always defers to me around climate issues because she knows I work in this area. So in some ways, she's lucky she hasn't had to be saddled. But in many families, I guess we could say that the kids are the leaders. Like they're the ones who are bringing the information yeah. home from school. And that's a tough place for children to be in sometimes. Um, yeah. So yeah, just just sharing, you know, validate, elevate, create. Just be with the, be with the. We, the parents don't have to have. I mean, listeners, just to be clear, parents don't have to have answers for the children. They just need to be able to just be in the questions with the children. That's all. Yes. Uh, that's all that's necessary. Um, so. Yes, I just I want to underline that <laughs> again. It's just you know mm. we're in this together. Let's learn together. This is important. You know, I'm interested in what you're thinking and wondering about. And if I don't know, we're going to find out, you know, let's let's do this together. And, you know, teachers, too, are in a similar dilemma. You know, mm -hmm. <clears throat> there is this thought now that somehow climate change, again, has to be brought into the curriculum. But they're like, we don't know what to do with these feelings that, of course, are a natural response to this distressing information. And they're like, we're not a therapist and we have all these other things we have to do. So really equipping the teachers too mm -hmm. and the parents. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and climate imports all the other baggage along with it that is also taboo, like social justice issues and yes. the economy and the whole meta, the whole meta stress of the modern world, mm -hmm. uh, obviously. Um, well, well, we're doing great. I just want to make sure that we are steering toward Leslie, your current your current passions also. Um, I know you've been doing this training program involved in the training program at the California Institute of Integral Studies, yes. which I'm sure was a a bear of a job to pull off that training <laughs> thing. So you know, kudos to you for that. Um, and um, I will just say there's a short, charming short documentary from uh, PBS that Leslie was featured in with a, a, a young a young woman dealing with her own climate stress. Uh, and I think it really um, 
Cinda Agha, the director, she really was transparent. And, and Leslie, your your therapeutic presence comes out really well in that in that short uh, documentary, uh, and your being able to laugh and hold the space and uh, co-regulate with this young, young person, I think is a great, you. you know, great example for people. Uh, but uh, yeah, where, where's your, where are your current, current passions, Leslie? Do you want to talk about your training or uh, other things that you're interested in? Yes. Well, you know, I, I know like so many of us doing this work, uh, there are all kinds of things that show up at our door. So we've, we've touched on many of them. Uh, Resources for the mental health field is certainly continuing. And as you said, the program at California Institute of Integral Studies is exciting. You know, it's for those who haven't taken a look, it's uh, 60 to 70 hours. We're kind of revising it for this next go round of a really in-depth dive with many um, guest teachers. Uh, Thomas has been a part of it. Uh, Caroline Hickman, who you mentioned, has come in as a guest. So it's, it's a wonderful learning for me, too, because uh, all these experts are coming in to share um, the piece that they're particularly strong and interested in. So that's lovely. And it's, uh, you don't have to be a student at the school. It's a community offering um, uh, in terms of who's eligible to take it. You don't even have to be a mental health clinician. It's for allied professionals, anyone interfacing uh, with this. So there's that, there's the work with children, and I, I can't say too much about it yet because it's formative, but I've, I have been asked to write one, another book now for younger kids. So that is likely going to be a focus for the next year coming up. Um, and then maybe one area we haven't talked about as much is I'm getting a lot of requests from agencies, organizations, governmental uh, departments uh, who work in some way or another in the environmental field. And the staff need for these folks who are, you know, frontliners uh, of being with these themes day in and day out and also are having their own human experience, but it's not really a part of the workplace. Uh, but perhaps it should be, is kind of the question mm -hmm. on the table. So being invited to do sort of an employee wellness webinar, interactive, uh, you know, providing resiliency tools and that type of thing for people who are doing this work, which I think is really exciting. You know, part, part of what we're talking about is just about every field is having to reinvent itself right where do our emotional landscapes live in the context of the work we do and in our communities and we're breaking out of silos and and so to have these potential forums for emotional content in the workplace is this kind of uh, important exciting new ground we can be more again more of who we are in the work that we do and let's you know learn how to do that together so that mm. feels like a really exciting area and i i don't know i suspect the two of you have this struggle too is i try and say yes whenever i can to what comes <laughs> what comes to me because of the uh you know we know how immense the need is uh 
And so it's also just trying to balance it. So I do have, uh, you know, many, many channels that are active right now. Yes, certainly feeling feeling you there. <laughs> there. Uh, luckily, Finland is a bit smaller country than the United States, for example. So, so it's a bit more manageable for me than for you too, for example. <laughs> but, um, but, but yes, and the work workplace thing certainly seems to be growing. And um, one of our previous guests, Susan Moser, oh, yeah. has been working a lot on that that front. And this whole adaptive mind pro projects strongly resonates with with what you what you said. But how yeah. about you, Thomas? What does this raise up for you? Yeah, this is all great. I mean, I I so love this this podcast. I I get as much out of it as any anyone because. I get a chance to talk to people like Leslie, and it reminds me of all the things that I've done. <laughs> of course, I'm thinking about having my own eco-psychology certificate that I created and ran for over a decade. Ooh, and so nice. I'm so glad that I can take that off of my shoulders and have people <laughs> like Leslie carrying that mantle because it's a lot of work. And, uh, you know, we also had Renee Lertzman. Mm -hmm. uh, we interviewed her recently, and she'll be coming on. Uh, and she works at Google. And so there are, yes. it's just, again, the th takeaway for listeners is that this is happening everywhere. There are people doing good things everywhere. And if you don't know about it, it's, it's just because you don't know about it doesn't mean it's not happening. It's just, you know, it's so nice to connect with people and realize all the, all the possibilities. Um, and it's nice to end on the set of boundaries, uh, on boundaries, setting boundaries. Um, that I think is an area upon it we should bring in on our podcast for future episodes the nedra nedra tawab uh is a is a therapist i saw speak earlier this year on she says books on setting boundaries in the family and in relationships and so much of what she talked about i thought um translated perfectly into the climate and environmental realm to be a healthy and to be a healthy person yes. we have to be able to set boundaries on behavior on the news on products mm -hmm. uh on practices you know so we can live the way that we want to, to live our ecological life yeah and it, it does require setting healthy boundaries mm -hmm. and holding those boundaries when because the world as we know is pushing us toward being unsustainable all the time yes. being consumeristic and taking in the news and buying products and every day we have to have boundaries around all of this sort of stuff so it's just a good a good reminder uh but it's common sense when you look at it from the outside. You know, yes. we need healthy boundaries with our family, with our partners, with our children, mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera. So it's something to think about. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But this has been great. As always, we could go longer, but we touched <laughs> on a lot. Um, Leslie, for um, now the listeners will have a, an inroad into your body of growing body of work and um, across the lifespan and with children mm -hmm. and um, mm -hmm. and. Um, being in our being in our bodies yes. and being able to think use our imagination oh, harness our imagination yes so thank you very much leslie for your time oh, today thank you this has been a wonderful conversation well, well thanks Le Le leslie <laughs> so you all take care listeners you can find us at climatechangeandhappiness.com where you'll see a list of all of our episodes and eventually um leslie's episode and we'll have some good links in there that you can follow up um, and think about supporting us at our Patreon uh, so we can bring more of this great content to you. And uh, listeners and uh, Leslie and Pana, you all take care. The Climate Change and Happiness podcast is a self-funded volunteer effort. 
Please support us so we can keep bringing you messages of coping and thriving. See the donate page at climatechangeandhappiness.com.